do appreciate you coming out. And um, on special days like Easter, I like to have like a three-part series, one in the sunrise service. I like to do the Sunday school and then the worship service. It especially helps like this morning when we're going through one chapter and we broke it up into three parts. And the chapter is none other than Isaiah 53. And I chose Isaiah 53 because Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is giving the gospel and he says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. We know that. We know many Old Testament scriptures, including Isaiah 53 that talks about the death of Christ very clearly. But we also or may not know that Isaiah 53 also gives some of the scriptural evidence for the resurrection, verses 10 through 12. So we're going to be looking specifically at those verses during the worship service. There's other verses too in the Old Testament, Psalm uh, 16, also Psalm 22, uh, that talk about not only the death of Christ, but also the resurrection of Christ in the Old Testament. Well, this morning in our sunrise service, we looked at the first three verses where it talked about the suffering servant, despised by men, forsaken by men. And it begins with, who has believed our report? And the idea is, it's a prophecy that as Christ came and Christ gave the gospel, he was rejected. He was rejected by the Jewish people, and he was rejected by the world, But we talked this morning that even in the beginning, he was rejected by his own disciples who did not believe the resurrection, though he had told them and taught them while he was here. But of course, they ended up, as he appeared to them, rejoicing and worshiping him, uh, the resurrected Lord, and he gave them understanding of the scriptures. So this morning, what we looked at was the rejected Savior. Now, For Sunday school, we're going to look at verses 4 through 10, and that is the redeeming Savior. And again, it's the same premise of why why this chapter, because Paul said these are according to the scriptures. And I can't so very well look at the end of it without looking at the middle of it. And I'm going to make a few arguments that if if there was no resurrection, then there was no proof that his death was an atonement. So... The resurrection is the proof and the evidence of his atonement, of what he did, and of who he is. So we're going to look at verses 4 through 10, which are primarily about his death. And as we take a a look at his death, you are going to just see how incredibly accurate and detailed is the description of his death. But before we go any further, let's just bow in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for saving us. Lord, as a holy God who cannot fellowship with sin, sinful men, sinful people, sinful world, you provided a way that we could have a relationship with you and fellowship. And that was through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we're going through the book of Isaiah, we see all of that, especially Uh, the crescendo of the resurrection and exaltation of Christ. Father, at this moment, we'll spend a little time talking about the death of Christ. And Father, it just thrills our heart in the detail of this prophecy of what Christ did on the cross for us. Give us wisdom and understanding 
and we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so then again, looking at Isaiah 53, I invite you to turn there. As you can see, the first three verses were about the rejected Savior. So he prophesied, he prophesied even the rejection by the Jewish people that he came unto his own and his own received him not. We saw that demonstrated, sadly, on the very beginning of the morning of the day of his resurrection. We saw that, but it ended up that grief was replaced with joy and worship at the understanding of his resurrection. And then it, verse 4, it turns. It turns to the death of Christ. And again, let me, let me make a connection here because I've wrestled with this myself. Should I really be doing this? You know, we're going to be talking about the resurrection. This isn't the resurrection per se, but it leads to it. So here's, here's where I was thinking about this. While today's Easter and our focus is on the resurrection of Christ, it behooves us to look at this part of Isaiah 53, which talks about the death of Christ. Without Christ's death on the cross, there would be no need for his resurrection, right? I mean, if he didn't die, he wouldn't need to be raised. But it goes beyond that. He didn't just die. It was substitutionary atonement, meaning he died in our place. He died for our sins. He took our punishment. But without that, there would be no need for resurrection to prove all of that because it didn't happen. But it did happen. And Isaiah 53 is going to talk about that. If there was no death and resurrection, then there wouldn't be a gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, it tells us that this is what the gospel is, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. That's why we're here in Isaiah, because Isaiah will talk about both of those, but especially the resurrection. And then also in 1 Corinthians 15, later on in Paul's fantastic argument, to say, okay, okay, you say there's no resurrection. Okay, okay, you say Christ wasn't resur resurrected. Then let me tell you what that would spell for you. And in verse 17, he says, if Christ had not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Because the resurrection is important for the proof and the evidence that he was who he said he was and he did what he said he was going to do. So that is the argument for looking at this. And so with that, let's, let's begin. But before we begin, I, I want to just tell you how great this chapter is. And there's a lot of great things said about it. And when you get in it, it's just incredible. It's, it's such a detailed look at the atonement of Christ. If you don't understand what atonement is, if you, if you want to understand what the gospel is, read this chapter. It, it, I'm, it behooves me to find a more detailed and good explanation of the atonement of Christ that we're going to look at in just a moment, and then his resurrection. But one writes this, like Mount Everest, Isaiah 53 stands out in beauty and grandeur but only because it reveals Jesus Christ and takes us to Mount Calvary and then to the empty tomb. That was Warren Wiersbe. Kyle and Dalich, the authority on the Old Testament and their commentary, they say 
that it is like Isaiah is writing this sitting beneath the cross upon Golgotha. It's as if he is seeing him. And of course he is because he's a prophet and it was revealed to him. But it's as if he was sitting under Golgotha where Christ was being crucified and then rose again. And they're writing from there. Someone writes, Isaiah 53 is a pinnacle chapter in the Old Testament. It is the Mount Everest of the Old Testament. It is a Holy Spirit-inspired prophecy of the meaning of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ 700 years before he came. It was John MacArthur. In going through these quotes, I came across the quote of Martin Luther, Martin Luther the Reformer, and he remarked on Isaiah 53, and no doubt there is not in all the Old Testament scriptures a clearer text or prophecy both of the suffering and the resurrection of Christ. Get that? The resurrection of Christ. Then in this chapter, wherefore it is but right that it should be well known to all Christians, yea, should be committed to memory, that thereby we may strengthen our faith and defend it. Wow. And then another quote, and this was something that, Ed, you mentioned to me. Isaiah 53 is the forbidden chapter. It is forbidden to be read in synagogues today. And when you take a good look at it, you understand why. Because it, it is so clear on Christ is our Savior. And it was a, an atonement, a substitutionary atonement. He died in our place. So it says, the 17th century Jewish historian Raphael Levi admitted that long ago the rabbis used to read Isaiah 53 in the synagogues. But after the chapter caused arguments and great confusion, the rabbis decided that the simplest thing would be to just take that prophecy out of the readings, out of the readings, not out of the Bible, but out of the readings in synagogues. Wow. This is a powerful chapter. Well, let me, before we actually get into the text, let me just make one other proposition here. Not only is it right for us to do it during Easter, but when the apostles came, and of course were saved, and Christ sent them out, and they preached, and it was under the Holy Spirit who, who, who assured that what they preached what they taught and what they wrote was absolute truth. God's word when they wrote it and God's truth when they preached it. We find out in the book of Acts, we find their doctrinal statement. Their doctrinal statement is what they preached. That's called the kerygma. And we see the kerygma of everyone who preaches in the New Testament in the book of Acts says the same thing. And it's first and foremost about the death and the resurrection of Christ. First of all, Peter, in Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24, what, what an amazing statement here. It says, this man, talking about Jesus Christ, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So it answers the question, who nailed 
Jesus to the cross? Well, one, God in his sovereign plan. But there are others, which would be the Jews, the Romans, and even us, because he died on the cross for our sins. We nailed him there. But it says, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you, talking to the Jews, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. That's the resurrection. Also, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul writes, very interesting in the book of Acts, uh, he, he preached, rather, Luke wrote it, uh, recorded their sermons uh, as they were given to them, unless he was there and witnessed it. Paul, in his preaching in Acts 13, said, Brethren, sons of Abraham's family, and those among you who fear God would be the Gentiles. To us, the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers recognizing neither him nor the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled these by condemning him. Did you see what that said? You read it every week, but you fulfilled it by nailing him to the cross. And though they found no ground for putting him to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they carried out all that was written ahead of time, prophecy, that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. Verse 30, but God raised him from the dead. So this is the kerygma. This is, if you want to know what the doctrinal statement of it is the early church, you can't really get, get that printed off the internet. But you can see it in your Bible as you systematize it and put it together. And it was certainly all about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Faith alone in him, not works. That came out as well in the book of Acts and in the Jesus' teaching and the New Testament. And so we have exactly what they preached and what they believed. And it was the death and resurrection. So with that, we will commence and we'll go to this section, verses 4 through 10, and talk about the death of Christ, knowing that this was before his resurrection and necessary for the resurrection. All right. So if if you're looking at verses 4 through 10, and you want to know what is meant by atonement, which means that he provided a sacrifice that removed our sins and forgave our sins. That's what atonement means. If you want to understand what substitutionary atonement is, substitutionary mean he took, he, means he took our place. So it was substitutionary atonement. He took our place, took our sin, took our punishment, and removed it. John 1, 29, John said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you want to know these things, this chapter is the centerpiece of that, and it will talk exclusively about that. Now, one other thing, in verses 2 through 6, Isaiah includes the Jews primarily. This was written to the Jews. But he also includes himself with the pronouns us, we, and our. 
But you could also include, certainly include, and I think Paul does in Romans chapter 10 when he includes this, quotes these verses, and he includes the Gentile world, that we are all ones responsible for the death of Christ. All right, having said that, let's look at verse 4. So, without the substitutionary atonement, there would be no need for a resurrection. And the resurrection is what proves that this portion that we're reading now happened, substitutionary atonement. Surely our griefs he himself bore. And of course, that's on the one hand referring to what he had just said, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we did not esteem him. And so it's kind of a segue here. Surely our griefs he himself bore, but now it's starting to move into he bore our sins. And our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves, we, notice the we, esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. So when it says that he bore our griefs, it's more than just, you know, the grief of men. And it certainly would be the grief of life, of what happens when we sin and we live a life of sin, all the grief. Because then surely, uh, you know, that would be in consideration. But ultimately, it's the grief of sinners, not only of their life in this life, but also if they don't come to Christ, the future punishment. This whole grief of sin in the world, this whole grief of sin and punishment by the wrath of God, a holy God, to do only what's holy anyway. Christ bore that. And of course, we're starting to talk about his substitution now. And we're getting into those words. Again, as we go through this, remember what Kyle and Dalit said. It's as if Isaiah was at Golgotha underneath the cross recording what was happening. It says, and our sorrows he carried, sorrows from sin, and of course, his own sorrow of, of, of his people. He, he said in the scriptures, in the gospels, Jerusalem, oh Jerusalem, you who have killed all the prophets and those who were sent to you, many times I wanted to gather you uh, as a group of people but you would not believe. And so there is that sorrow that he, he went through. Even on the resurrection morning, we went through, you know, we went through that the apostles, when they were told by the women that an angel told us he is not here, he is risen, they said nonsense. And you know what nonsense is in the Greek? It means frivolous tales. Women, stop telling frivolous tales. It's the resurrection. And this is part of the rejection of Christ, although Christ turned it around, even though he did reproach the disciples for their unbelief and hardness of heart. But he restored them. And of course, when they received the Holy Spirit, they became the pillars of truth in teaching and in writing of God's truth. We go on in this verse and it says, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. Now, what does that mean? Well, this is what the people thought of him. Good. He's getting what he deserves. No wonder the triumphal entry uh, that began Passover 
in that week. By the end of that week, it was the greatest travesty that ever was. And the same people who were yelling Hosanna in the beginning of the week were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. Why? Because they esteemed him stricken and smitten of God. What does that mean? You know, under the law, the system of the Mosaic law, you were smitten by God and afflicted if you would not follow God, if you sinned. Uh, just read 1 Kings and 2 Kings, and you'll understand that. Even though God gave them many opportunities to turn, he begged them to turn. They would not, and they were smitten of God in various times, too, until their captivity. But that's how they viewed Christ. What did you do that God is punishing you? What did you do? Well, we know that he did nothing but we also know from Acts that this was according to God's predetermined plan, even though you, he says, talking to the Jews, you nailed him to the cross. And so that's the idea of him being smitten. And of course, at this point, what we're understanding is there was a sense in which he was smitten of God. The wrath of God did come upon him, but it was for our sin because he's the substitute, the substitutionary atonement. And I love Hebrews, it says, but we do see him, that's Jesus Christ, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, meaning human, the the eternal son of God added humanity, his incarnation, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, the resurrection and exaltation, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He tasted death for us. He tasted punishment for us. He was smitten of God, smitten of God for us. Verse 5, but he was pierced. What a, what a great choice of words there, this prophet who God had been revealing his will and his revelation as he wrote. But he was pierced through for, and here we go. If in case anybody doesn't understand, he was pierced through for our our transgressions, not his, but ours. He was crushed for our, our. And again, Isaiah includes himself, and we ought to too if we are believers. In fact, that's what makes you a believer, is the moment you come and you say, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe that. I trust in that. I trust him. I take him. I receive him. I embrace him as my savior the one who died on the cross for me. It says the chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. Well, you just have to be amazed at the clear imagery. It's so plain, so obvious. It's hard to imagine the Jews not understanding that this is referring to Christ. And again, as we said, I believe that there's a sense in which they did because this is now the forbidden chapter not allowed to be read in synagogues today. Of course it is. You know what would happen? This would be like Martin Luther who translated the Bible into the German language, the language of the people. Reading Isaiah 53 in a Jewish synagogue would be like translating the death of Christ, the Messiah, in their language. Pierced. Now, Christ was pierced. Now, we know that he was pierced after he died. But this is imagery here. This is, these are using metaphors. And it's the idea, why was he pierced? Because he was already dead. And they wanted to make sure that he was dead. And when they pierced him, 
It says in John that blood and water came out, which was a medical evidence that he had already died because he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And, but he was pierced. And as it says in, in John 19, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. But what happens in verse 37 of that same chapter, he's going to quote Zechariah. And, and, and putting this all together and then also quoting Zechariah, um, it, it also has a reflection here to Isaiah 53. What does Zechariah say? I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. So even though they have rejected him, there's a time when they're coming. And this is going to be a, a, a prelude and part of the millennial kingdom. So that they will look on me whom they have pierced. They will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. They will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. So they will come to him. He will bring Israel. They will come to him, but they will mourn upon the fact that they pierced him. Now look at this last phrase here where it talks about spiritual healing. Again, understand that we're talking about metaphors here. There are those who would take this passage to say, well, you see, the cross means health and wealth. Because of the cross, we should never be sick. And I hardly know a man who said that who doesn't die. And, they, and anyone who says it now and, and isn't dead yet, it's appointed unto man wants to die. It doesn't mean physical healing. It means spiritual healing. Look, look, look how it is, the, the Hebrew parallelism. He's already talking about the substitutionary atonement. He says the chastening, Christ chastening for our well-being fell upon him. He took our place. And then what would it mean? And by his scourging, metaphor for the cross, we are healed. Now, just in case we don't think that means spiritual healing, I'd like you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, that's the context that Peter takes it in. Verse 24, Peter says, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Are we clear? Are we clear of what we're talking about here? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for, and he's quoting Isaiah here, for by his wounds you were healed. Is he talking about health and wealth? No, he's talking about sin. We are healed spiritually by the death of Christ. And we're going to go through all the way to verse 10, and it's all about substitutionary atonement, which was necessary for the resurrection. Verse 6, well, now we get to the one that really steps on our toes. All of us, and notice Isaiah included himself, us, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to his own way. That's sin. That's the sin nature in man. But even, so, even still that happened, the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. So we see the sinfulness of man. This, this is describing Romans 3.23, which says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is the Romans 3.23 in the Old Testament that comes from Isaiah. 
This is an inspired verdict. In case anyone doubts it, we're reading the word of God, and the word of God says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you think. I don't care how you try to suppress it. We're all sinners, and so we're in the need of a Savior. We're in the need of forgiveness. And, of course, that's what this is going to talk about, the death of Christ on the cross, which is the work of salvation. And the resurrection is the proof of it. So we see this then, that this last phrase where the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all, our iniquity. Did Christ die for our sins? Yes. Were our sins placed upon Christ? Yes. Did Christ pay for our penalty? Yes. If no other clearer clearer passage, we have it right here. And it says to fall on him. And the word fall means to lay the burden, put the burden. The burden of our sin was placed upon Christ. I think of the verses very clearly in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That's what Isaiah is talking about on our behalf. Substitutionary atonement. One writes, The manner in which God laid our iniquity on him was that God treated him as if he had committed every sin ever committed by every person, though he was perfectly innocent of any man, John MacArthur. And so it reveals our greatest need, which is forgiveness of sins and We need salvation. And that's what he did. Because we are sinners like sheep. Moving on, we come to verse 7. Verse 7 from our Isaiah 53 passage. And we're moving towards the resurrection. Uh, These verses are going to end in the resurrection. So hang on. Verse 7 reads, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. And so, first of all, what this is saying is that there was no protest in the Son of God. This is the will of God. This is the good pleasure of the Lord. This is the plan of God was the salvation of man. So he didn't protest, even though he could have, because he was innocent. Of any charge they gave him, even the hopped up charges. So even though he was afflicted on the cross by God for the sin of man, he didn't open his mouth in protest. But it also shows him as the sacrificial lamb, does it not? We have the Old Testament sacrifices where they would come, bring a lamb without blemish. They would lay their hand on the lamb in, in symbolism of their sins being transferred to that innocent victim. Something or someone innocent has to die for someone guilty. That's substitutionary atonement. And of course, then the lamb was slaughtered, crushed. Sins fell upon him. The only thing is, is that when the Old Testament talks about that, the Old Testament sacrifices merely covered merely covered it for a time. They didn't take the sin away. That did not come until Christ came and John the Baptist, as we already said, next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away, not covers, but takes away the sin of the world. He is the sacrificial lamb. 
And you know from going through the book of Revelation, Lamb, that title of Lamb is one of the favorites of the Apostle John in the Apocalypse, calling him the Lamb, the Lamb of God. That's what he did. That's what this is about. That's why he was resurrected, to prove it. That's why he was exalted, because what he did. And so we see this in a tremendous way. Also, too, in 1 Peter, again, 1 Peter must have spent quite a bit of time in Isaiah 53, talking about Christ, that we should follow in his steps. And he quotes Isaiah, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously and also doing the will of God. And then verse 24, and he himself bore, using Isaiah's verbiage, bore our sins in his body on the cross that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So this is explained and used in the New Testament, revealed to these other apostles of what the other prophet had revealed to him, that being Isaiah. Well, now we move to verse 8. So this is Isaiah 53, verse 8. And it says, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off, and that in the Old Testament often means die, punished. Times when God says, and I will cut them off from the land of the living. It means die. Who considered that he was cut off and again punished, for his own sins, but he wasn't. That's what they would have believed. It's, it's his generation that considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living. And then it says, for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. Moving from what they thought to what God thought. Now, what's interesting about this, this, you remember in the book of Acts, the Ethiopian eunuch who is reading the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, when Philip came alongside of him and he, and he was reading this and he said, I don't, I don't understand that. That's found in Acts chapter 8, verses 32 and 33. And of course, Philip explained that, led, them to the, led him to the Lord and he was even baptized. This is referring to him being cut off and killed. And yes, it was at the hands of men, but it was also because of the predetermined plan of God that he would die, but not just a death, a substitutionary death. And because he died a substitutionary death, we can have forgiveness of sins. Well, how do you know that? Because he was raised from the dead, the resurrection, which we're getting close to here. He took the stroke that was due us. Verse 9, more prophecy here. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. Because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth, which, which Peter previously quoted. Now, interesting here, it says he was assigned with wicked men. You're thinking of the cross, and you're thinking of the, you're thinking of the thieves on either side of him. Not only were they being crucified as criminals, all three of them were being crucified as criminals, 
<coughs> except God was doing a great work. The idea would be, well, that they would, they would have a death and a burial as criminals. So his grave was assigned with wicked men. Yet, he was with a rich man in his death. And, of course, you remember uh, uh, Joseph, of, Joseph had given him his uh, tomb, which is possibly still there today in Jerusalem. We saw it, and it's possible that the, the tomb that's in the church of the Holy Sepulchre is the grave, very possible. If not, it was a grave, something like that. If you want to know where the grave was, and it was just a cave with a hole cut in it, and then something to close it, which sometimes was a large rock that you rolled across it. And the idea here is that there were thieves on both sides of him, Yet he wasn't dying for his sins. He wasn't dying as a criminal. He was doing the worthy work of salvation for man. And because of this worthy work, even though he started with a lowly birth, you wouldn't have known that he was royalty being born in an animal shelter and being laid in an animal food trough. You wouldn't think he was royalty. But at this point, when he's accomplished salvation, he was worthy of a rich man's grave course he only needed it for three days (laughs) but there was no deceit so as we think how is it that he gets to be the savior and the sacrifice well he had to be sinless without sin he was sinless he was without deceit he was wordless when it came to this point and he committed himself to the will of God it's what it said there in Peter that he committed himself and entrusted himself to God And then we come to verse 10, the first part of verse 10, because still talking about the cross, and then it's going to make a shift from the resurrection, and we're going to point those out. Verse 10 says, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. All this vivid imagery, and it's even more imagery than we would imagine if we were to describe the crucifixion as we saw. As horrific as it was, I don't know if any of us would say that he was crushed Uh, It fell upon him. But it says the Lord was pleased to crush him, crush him with our sins and then with the wrath of God. And the Lord was pleased to do this because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son in our place, substitutionary atonement, so that whosoever will believe on him should not perish but have everlasting life. That was God's will, and Jesus Christ accomplished it on the cross. How do we know it was accomplished? Because he rose from the dead. It says, if he would render himself as a guilt offering, and of course he did, he was a sacrificial offering. A guilt offering is restitution, which is an interesting word to think about. Christ was paying for our sins. He was paying for the debt that we owed, that is the idea of sin. We violated God, uh, violated his standards, and there's a restitution that needed to be made. We have a debt, a debt of sin, and it's to be paid by eternal death in hell. But Christ made restitution. He was a guilt offering, and then it begins. Here it begins, and I believe there are seven phrases here in these next verses that talk about the resurrection, and we'll be picking this up in our worship service. And right in the middle of this, there's this transition from his death, substitutionary atonement, to his resurrection. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, 
Here's the first one. He will see his offspring. Now, how can you see your offspring if you're dead? This is referring to the resurrection. And the offspring is the redeemed. Believers, it's us. And I can't wait to talk more about that. It says, he will prolong his life. Now, beloved, this doesn't mean that he needed more time to make atonement for our sins. Because his life didn't make atonement for our sins. His death did. So he's not talking about he needed more time on earth. He died when he was 33 at the will of God, the hand of God, as a substitutionary atonement. So if it's talking about prolonging his days, this is on the other side of his death. This is referring to his resurrection. It's also going to include the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant that David's seed will sit on the throne of David and rule forever because his days are prolonged. He's eternal. He always was eternal. And here we see this. It says, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Well, it doesn't just say, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper as if he doesn't need to be there. The good good pleasure of the Lord would be certainly salvation, the plan of salvation for more to come to Christ, for uh, to be a part of the body of Christ, to be the bride of Christ. All of the plan and program of God for those who come to him, it will, it will, it will future prosper in his hand, meaning he is alive. And by the way, his resurrection also inaugurated a post-resurrection ministry. There's a ministry of Christ going on right now. We'll talk about that. Intercession and prayer is one of them, which it will mention right here in verse 11 and 12. And then we come to verse 11. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. Well, how can you see it if you're in the grave? And you could say, well, that's because there will be a resurrection. You know, the Bible tells us there will be a resurrection. Well, there will only be a resurrection because Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. That's what opens up the resurrection. That's why we as believers are going to have a resurrection. When we die, our body is not resurrected at the moment. Our body goes in the grave and decays. Our soul goes immediately in the presence of the Lord. To be absent from the body, which is in the grave, is to be present with the Lord. But there's a day coming when God will raise these bodies and will then be with our soul, and we will be there to worship the Lord in body, soul, and spirit, just as he created man. And now he has redeemed man, restored man, those who come to Christ. And so we, this will all be seen prospering his hand, but Christ will see it, which means he has to be alive, and he will be satisfied. It will bring joy and delight to him. And then it says, by his knowledge, that's how the NASB translated it. Some take this as by their knowledge, the saving knowledge of Christ. But we'll talk about that in worship service. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. And he will bear their iniquities. Justify the many. You know what justification is? His righteousness is imputed to us. Our sin was imputed to him. Our punishment was imputed to him. The moment we believe, his righteousness is imputed to us. So our sins have been atoned, have been, there's been a penalty and a punishment for them, and we have the righteousness of Christ. 
justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. And then verse 12 quickly. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great. That also means resurrection. What good would it be to have an inheritance if you're dead? Because your next of kin get that inheritance. But he's going to get an allotment. And this is about the victor. This is in, in terms and metaphors of victorious kings who win a battle. Well, he is the king of kings. And it says, and he will divide the booty with the strong. And interesting way of saying it, military terms, Old Testament terms, but what's it referring to? The inheritance that he's going to share with believers. Ephesians 1.11. It says, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many. Keeps coming back to that, doesn't it? And then it says, and interceded for the transgressors. I believe this ultimately is going to talk about Jesus' resurrection, post-resurrection ministry of where he intercedes for us, as does the Holy Spirit. So we have God, the Holy Spirit, praying for us, and we have God, the Son of God, praying for us and interceding for us. Well, as we conclude with this, we, we see that there is a resurrection and there is indeed a, an exaltation. One, it had to be because this is the proof of what he did. But secondly, it opens up all of these ministries. And thirdly, as we understand and believe not only the death but the resurrection, like those early disciples, when he appeared to them and they finally believed, they had unspeakable joy. They worshiped him. We're in the temple daily praising him because of the great things God had done by raising Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's why we're here this morning and that's what we're celebrating. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and this precious, precious text of Isaiah. And there would not be a resurrection had there not been a, a, a substitutionary atoning death. But there was and we can believe it, and we know he lives. And of course, even as the hymn says, we know he lives because he lives within my heart. The Holy Spirit has opened our eyes, opened our hearts, opened our minds, and we know that he lives. And we have the strongest evidence that he died for our sins and was raised on the third day according to the infallible scriptures. Thank you, Lord. We believe. We have joy and we praise and worship you because of that resurrection. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.